Clinton Smout is a regular on a Rider Skills segment. I'm sure you know the name. He went to the Yukon again this year. He acts as a sweep and support rider for a commercial trip organizer. Now, of course, Clinton's school is very busy, his riding school, so he doesn't need the work. It's more of an excuse to do the trip to places that he really enjoys going to, and the Yukon is certainly up there for him. In fact, he actually has to book his time off with his office so that he can go do these trips. So this time when Clinton said he was going, him and I arranged to have him check in while he was on the trip, and then again afterwards when he returned home. So while he's on the trip, he talks about his adventure in the Yukon, how it's going, what he's experiencing, also riding in the Yukon and what that is like. And then we also hear about his experience visiting the Dusk to Dawn event. This is one of the reasons he went to the Yukon this year, was to see this event in Dawson. We'll talk about that and you'll find out maybe why riders come from all over the place to go to this event in the Yukon. And then when he got back home, we connected again to find out just how the trip all summed up, but also to get those all-important riding tips for the Yukon. The Yukon is not the average place to ride. There's some things that you'll definitely want to consider before you go, and Clinton's going to talk about those things from his experience. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Sean Thomas, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. So Clinton Smout is is in the Yukon, and, and if you've listened to our Rider Skills um, episodes, you've probably heard me and Clinton talk about this, and, and Clinton was very excited the last time we talked about it, and he is in the Yukon right now, and we managed to track him down at a, a tiny little hotel where he's staying. I imagine it's a little flea bag hotel. Clinton, <laughs> how are you doing? Hi, Jim. Great to hear from you. Actually, it's a really nice hotel. It's beautiful, right in Dawson City, Yukon. And we got in yesterday, so we'd be in attendance for this event called the Dusk Till Dawson. Because this time of year in the far north, there's very little darkness. First of all, before we talk about uh, Dusk to Dawson, uh, what are you doing? What what is this trip anyway? I guess seven years ago was the first Yukon trip. A bike shop in Ontario called Dual Sport Plus realized that they could promote adventure tourism and maybe sell some product at the same time to prepare customers' bikes for kind of arduous trips in the far north. So they provide transportation for our bikes 
So we fly out 10 days after the transport truck leaves Ontario. It travels 6,000 kilometers, 4,000 miles to Whitehorse, Yukon. And we fly to Vancouver, then up to Whitehorse. We unload our bikes and then we ride on the really cool roads, mostly gravel, up here in the Yukon and Alaska. Uh, we camp with our visa cards because we just stay at nice motels or as nice as you can find in the far north. All our meals are, are organized for us. So basically, um, it's kind of a handheld step into the adventure world. There's no camping. You don't have to worry about repairs on your bike. We have a chase truck with even a spare bike in the back, tires. Uh, we really, I'm spoiled as kind of the guy at the back doing the repairs. We have a generator and it's hooked up to an air compressor. So I can pop tires on and fill it up to the bead in seconds. It's like being in a shop on the side of the road. It's like running the Dakar or something. You had a full crew running yeah. there with you. Hey, what, what may have been missed in what you said was you don't have to ride your bike on this adventure. And this is what's kind of unique about what, what's been set up here is they take their bikes to to the company uh, that, that does it. They ship all the bikes and you just sort of sit at home and do whatever. And then you fly up at the last minute like a movie star and arrive. You guys have already went up. You've already unloaded all the bikes. Then they get on their bikes, they ride them. And the same in reverse. You don't have to ride them back. So you get to experience the Yukon without having to go through all the, the hard work, I guess. Yeah, that's the benefit. A lot of people I've talked to on road have ridden from, you know, California, Montana, Toronto, and it's taken them a week, eight, nine days to get here. Well, for me, that's the cost of time. I'm away from family and work, motels and food. And mostly tires, it's big expense because I like really soft adventure tires. So I would need a set to get here, a set to ride with, and a set to get me home. So it's much cheaper for me to pay them to transport me. And then it just costs the airfare to get here. Why the Yukon? What is it about the Yukon that is so great? Well, what brings me back year after year is just the scenery. Um, we traditionally come in the Yukon's fall, which is the last, last week of August. A little bit sketchy as far as weather risk. You could have to brush snow off your bike in the morning. And you definitely need heated gear, vest, gloves, whatever you have. But... The colors of the lichen and the mosses, there's not a lot of trees up here. There's Sitka, Sitka spruce in the far north, and there's no maple trees. There's a lot of aspen and poplar and birch, but the colors in the fall are spectacular. But Clint McBride, the manager of Dual Sport, heard about this. It's Don't call it a rally. It's an event, the Dustil Dawson, and it's for the summer solstice, June 21st time of year. So he really wanted to experience that. But um, the vistas of the mountain ranges, etc., and the roads are phenomenal. And there's very little traffic. And what's strange is we were told that the bugs would carry you away in June. But this has been a very unusual summer without a lot of bugs. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, because we talked about that. I was really thinking that you were going to be eaten alive. That's great. That's good to hear. We're lucky. What, what, what about the riding conditions? Like, I know the, the roads are rough, but is there off-road riding there that you guys do as well? Yeah, there's some pavement to get from, you know, the historic roads that an adventure rider would like is called the South Canal Road, C-A-N-O-L, the North Canal Road, uh, the Dempster Highway, the top of the World Highway. The North Klondike is another highway. We just don't happen to have it in our particular route. But the the draw to come up here, if you like adventure riding and you don't mind gravel, is that's where the wildlife and the vistas are the best. And it's so remote, there hasn't been pavement that's reached those areas yet. I don't know if they'll ever pave the Dempster. There's virtually no one lives on it for 400 kilometers. But it's a transportation access road that was named after a Northwest Mountie before the RCMP, so like 100 years ago. And he went up through the Dempster area um, helping native populations as a Mountie. So they named the road after him, but I hope they never pave it because it's so amazing to ride up it. Now you ride for a living. That's what you do day in, day out. You get really excited about this trip. And I think that sort of gives us an idea of of where it should sit on the excitement scale. Oh, every year. Um, This was my fourth trip and I definitely hope to come up here as long as I can. I may have to switch as I get older to a smaller bike. You know, as I age, I don't, uh, if I don't have the strength anymore to handle the great big adventure bikes, I'll just uh, make a smaller one. But I hope to come up here for years yet. Yeah, but you're not aging though yet, Clinton, right? I'll be 63 in a couple of days. Oh, in a couple of days. But, wow. Are you going to have your birthday up there? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, oh. I am. So there'll be some special celebrations for you. Well, I haven't told those other people because I don't need the cake or the embarrassment. <laughs> okay, so so on this trip, you've, you've also, and the reason that you said they changed the dates on this was to get to the Dusk to Dawson event. Yes. But we're not going to call this a rally because I know that's wrong. Exactly. <laughs> the dusk to, dusk to Dawson, what, what is this? Well, th- apparently about 30 years ago, two fellas who were motorcyclists had the goal of getting up here to the Yukon. Sadly, one of them passed away en route. And so his buddy and others put together kind of a memorial ride 30 years ago in Dawson City. So it's just grown to an event that I attended last night where there was approximately 150 riders and they use a place called the Triple J Hotel, a very historic hotel in Dawson City. And it's two days, Thursday and Friday. And riders come as far as I took pictures of plates from California, Prince Edward Island, all over Canada and the U.S., a lot of Alaska plates. And they rode everything from a 250 Yamaha up to the big, you know, the super adventure bikes, the 1250 BMWs, the 1290 KTMs. Uh, There was a really neat guy on a Ural with a sidecar. 
I saw one of those new Husqvarna Nordens, which was a really beautiful bike. Uh, a really cool Royal Enfield Himalaya. We're seeing quite a few of those on the roads up here, which is, it's a really good bike for the price range. Uh, not super heavy or big. It's a 400cc. So I'm seeing quite a few of those. And on the vintage gym, there was a 1981 R100 GS, 180,000 kilometers chugging away. It looked at stickers all over it. And that was a, a very tenured member of the Dusta Dawson event. Now, is this the one where they have a plaque set up outside of town? Like, I guess where, where this person had passed away, was that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't get, I'm going to try to find that, take a picture for the, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. For that'd, your, that'd be good. But um, I haven't found that yet, but there was uh, some fun motorcycle games, you know, like the slow race, a very, very tight slalom. So you're at the Dusk to Dawson event and they have all these, these different things they do for motorcyclists, like set up little challenges and whatnot? Yes. So anybody at all could just enter and they give you a pie plate with the, your number on your headlight or windshield and you just wait in line and there's a gentleman announcing, okay, here comes Diane on her BMW and they go through and everybody claps. It was really well and supportive and it was hilarious i was talking to this guy and it was a charity event so it raises money for a local uh, kids drop-in center so they had a boat full of ice and cold canned beer and you know me i'm allergic to alcohol so i just gave five dollars but anyway there was a guy who felt very important to raise money for this charity. So I don't know how many $5 beverages he'd purchased, but he was swaying a little bit and giggling. And I was shocked to see him pull up beside me when I was waiting in line to compete for the blind ride. The blind ride was you pull up to a line and they put a great big black bag over your helmet. So with this big black bag over your helmet, you can't see, but you kind of try to keep your bike pointed, pointed at the last place that you saw the pie plate. But what the buggers do is they, once your eyes are covered, they move the plate around. <laughs> so the crowd is supposed to yell, stop, go left, go right. And they're having fun with it. So there may have been some misinformation. But I ended up three feet and one inch away from the pie plate. And the gentleman who was swaying, standing on his bike, he got second place. He was two inches from the pie plate. So, <laughs> so what's the lesson to be learned there, Clinton? Uh, I, is it called blind drunk? I don't know. Just crazy. But I convinced him that his uh, rally fun games were over and he parked his bike for the evening because his hotel was right beside it. Right. Instructor Clinton came out and said, you know, buddy, you've already tipped over once. There's no barriers between the crowd and you. <laughs> You're done. Call it a day. <clears throat> you didn't place that in that. Oh, my God. I got my butt kicked, Jim. Oh, no. Um, one of our other guys, Clint, is a trials rider really good enduro rider 
and uh, he got his butt kicked too. They had some ringers in there. Uh, one lady, Lisa, represented the United States as a world competitor on the female participant team for the BMW GS Trophy. A phenomenally skilled rider, very humble. And she kind of, in the slow speed race, took off and then just basically stopped. I thought she had her side stand down until all the other participants beside her had got to the end. And then she just moved off. <laughs> it was really? really impressive. Yeah. And then there was a lot of dead time as they were recreating events and they're calling out Porco Ride. So I said to the organizer, you know, I do this little presentation at motorcycle shows on how to pick up a fallen big bike you know, how to get on and off if you're tired and your legs aren't really long. We've talked about it before, that Roy Rogers start, mm -hmm. kind of like getting on a horse. Yep. So I did this little presentation and that's where people came up to me and said, are you that guy from Adventure Rider Radio? <laughs> they they recognized my deep Lou Rawls voice, I think. Right, yeah. No, I, I could see that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what other things were, were happening there? Uh, mostly it was just the fun event where you could converse with other like-minded motorcycle nuts. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was a lot of comparisons and comparing where you've been, where are you going? What have you done on your adventure bike? So I explained that I was a cheater because I've only driven from Whitehorse. And uh, most people thought that that was a good idea if you only had a week off work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of um, sort of endless riding to get there. It's kind of like the prairies. It is. Um, I've ridden, ridden across Canada three times now. And, you know, Ontario, rocks and trees, rocks yeah. and trees. Oh, there's a, there's a lake. And then you get to the prairies. Thank God. Okay. I should be across Canada soon. Nope. The prairies, you can see your dog run away for two days. Yeah. Flat, 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 <laughs> big sky country. It's amazing. I love it. But I don't think it's changed all that much. So um, I'd prefer not to beat up my tires and spend the time at motels traveling. Maybe when I retire, I'll do it again. Mm -hmm. But this this transportation of my bike to a cool place to ride is the way for me for the next few years anyway. Yeah. It certainly sounds like a good idea. I like that. So where where are you in the trip right now? Are you halfway through? Uh, we're nearing the end. We're just past half. So tomorrow we're going to take a ferry across the Yukon River, which is just reopened because the spring melt and the horrendous rains they've had, the rivers are sometimes twice as wide as they used to be. So these ferries, some of them run on cables. And some of them run on just engine power, but the landing and the takeoff ramps where the ferries load and unload, uh, they're not there anymore. It was all washed away. Oh. So they've been work, working very diligently with big equipment to put the soil and the wood back. And they just reopened the ferry in way up north past uh the Yukon into the Northwest Territories ferries if you want to go to Iqaluit and Tuktoyaktuk and they just reopened them. Mm. And tomorrow 
that's what we do. We'll take a ferry across the Yukon River into Dawson and then ride the top of the world highway, which is really scenic, spectacular. And we take that to the most northern U.S.-Canada border crossing. And then we ride into Chicken. And you'll know it because you come over a hill in Alaska and there's a monster wooden chicken. <laughs> I don't know if you've been up there, Jim. Ch- chicken Alaska. No, I haven't been there, but I know of it. As soon as you said chicken, I know you're, yeah. you're talking chicken Alaska. And what's hilarious, when I did a little research on it, you know, my American friends mock me because I spell neighbor and color uh, differently than them. We had a U. Mm-hmm. Uh, they named it chicken historically because they couldn't spell ptarmigan. You know, the white bird that's there in the winter right. or the brown bird. So, <laughs> Right. Which is our, our grouse. It's, it's sort of what, like yeah, our exactly. grouse. Exactly. Right? It looks just like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, this rain that we just heard when, you, when we've been talking in the background yeah. there, what's that going to do for your ride tomorrow? Oh, it's going to be exciting because part of the top of the world highway is very packed down gravel. It's almost in the tire track like pavement. I'm sure you and the listeners have ridden that. Mm -hmm. So it's nice when it's dry because there's no dust on that really hard packed. But heavy rains until it evaporates uh, will create maybe a quarter of an inch of slick mud on the top of that hard pack. It's very slippery and slick. So you've got to be extremely careful. So... We'll give people the, some tips tomorrow that, uh, first of all, always let your friend go first. <laughs> That's why I'm at the back. And when you see that kind of black or color, darker colored soil and it's shiny, you've got to drop a gear down, slow down before you get to it, and then carefully cross it with very little sudden inputs no gear shifting, no braking, no throttle input, just kind of coast through those sections. And I tell people, ride at the speed you're comfortable crashing at, because this mud is slick. When we were talking earlier, when we were trying to set this up, you were, you'd mentioned that you were changing tires for people. Why would you be changing tires when you've had the, the bike's truck to the Yukon? Yeah. Uh, One gentleman in particular, uh, he thought that the tire he had would be adequate, but I don't know how many kilometers on it, but it was flat on the bottom when I unloaded it the other day in Whitehorse. So it either wore out in the truck or it was already (laughs) toast by the time he loaded it. I convinced him we experienced a little bit of mud on the south canal road and he said his heart was in his throat because the bike just swapped end to end but he he appreciated the tip i given him that you've got to ride your clutch keep two fingers over the clutch and if the back end slides around to the left or right immediately scrub off some power not with throttle because that changes your suspension and subsequent traction just take power away so the wheel doesn't slip as much and he said that got him through the mud, but he hoped that there wasn't any more mud. And I convinced him that there was definitely going to be a lot more mud because rain's in the forecast for the next three days. Ouch. So he he said, you know what, those extra tires you guys brought, is there one that'll fit my bike? So 
uh, I put a TKC 80 on the back of his KTM 1090 mm. and, uh, that'll get him through a lot better than the bold one. That's my favorite tire. The TKC 80. I love that tire. That's yeah. what I run on my bike. It does wear out, you know, in normal riding pavement gravel, you'd be good to get 3000, 4000 miles, five, 6,000 kilometers out of that tire. Yeah. But to me, the sacrifice is I get traction on the way. I don't want a tire that lasts 20,000 miles. It's as hard as a hockey puck. Yeah. To me, that's false economy because I'm going to crash in front of the students and I'm already goofy enough looking. I'd want to be on my back. <laughs> I was just thinking about um, the, the, any of the people that are on the trip, if they've taken your course, it must really pay off if they've had any sort of training, really. Yeah. Well, I learned over the years that in the emails that go out to people interested on one of these trips, we try to vet them and ask, how much off-road have you done? If you haven't done a lot of gravel riding on a big bike, we have my course available there's a friend of mine in the Ganaraska Forest near Lindsay named Steve Waycamp has a fantastic off-road school called Trail Tours. Anything to get you used to slipping around in loose terrain is going to be a huge advantage to your confidence and your safety up here. Uh, we had a gentleman, very nice fellow named Vic last year. I don't know how he ended up here, but he had a beautiful Africa twin, appropriate tires, but he'd never ridden in gravel, never ridden st standing up. So that's a pretty steep learning curve to learn how to ride gravel in the Yukon. Yeah. I asked him if he, if he knew how to swim and he goes, yeah, why? I said, did you learn in shark infested waters? <laughs> like... <laughs> So that's the person that we wished would have gone to somewhere and got a little training on off-road. Yeah. And it's a bit frustrating for me sometimes. Like the people, did I tell you there was a group of riders behind us in a construction zone? No, I didn't get to tell you that. These are not on your trip then? Yeah, they weren't with us, but there was a lot of riders this time of year coming north to the Yukon. So we were on Highway 2 heading towards Dawson City a couple of days ago, and there's a lot of construction on the highway. So you have to stop and wait for the pilot car that's a flashing light truck, and you follow it very slowly, like first gear speeds, across what's going to be the highway, but it's just dirt that's been, they wet it with big pumper trucks, then there's big rollers that flatten it and, and graders, and then they'll prepare it eventually for pavement. So imagine it's packed down sand and gravel, then they spray it to keep the dust down, and then it compacts better when it's wet. Kind of like the, the sand that's near the water at the beach when oh, the yeah. waves are on it, mm -hmm. that's packed down. So, but it's very slick. And these heavy trucks make deep ruts in that sand. So I was looking in my mirror as I'm riding along just to see how close these five gentlemen were on V-strums. And I saw two of them go down in very quick succession. 
So I didn't even stop and think that I wasn't at work. You know, if somebody's behind me when I'm teaching, I do a really quick spin turn and I race back and help them. So it turned out not very well because I raced back, put my bike on the stand and I lifted a V-Strom off of a guy who was kind of trapped underneath it. He wasn't hurt, but he was mortified, embarrassed because there's tons of traffic behind him. His three buddies that hadn't fallen, one other guy had. And then here's Captain Clinton (laughs) running back there with a yellow safety vest and a fluorescent orange helmet. And here, let me help you. And I pick him up. Are you sure you're okay? And then off we went again. Uh, A saddlebag fell off one guy's bike. So a guy in a truck carried it. And maybe five miles more, uh, there was a pullover stop for taking pictures. So these guys followed us in and I thought, I've got to help them. I have a hard time, Jim, taking my instructor's cap off. (laughs) So within the hearing range of my group who are having a water and taking pictures, I went over and said, hi, guys, uh, can I offer you some tips on how to ride ruts? And the guy that had fallen said, uh, no, (laughs) which I was a little stunned. But I gave them anyway. So at dinner that night, uh, one of the guys was killing himself laughing, saying, imagine you were that poor guy on the V-Strum who crashed. And out of nowhere, pops up Clinton in his safety vest. Hey, let me help you up. Do you mind if I give you some tips on how to ride? (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Did you tell him that you're an instructor? Did you tell him who you were? Well, when we did stop, one of the other guys in his group who did not fall said, hey, you're that guy on Adventure Rider Radio. So he seemed impressed that I was up there. But the guy, the two guys had fallen were not that impressed and didn't want to shake my hand. <laughs> they wanted nothing to do with you. That's funny. So did yeah. you pick up a nickname from this? Well, my co Adventure riders from my group are calling me Captain Clinton. <laughs> they want to see if they can buy me a cape to go behind my coat. <laughs> Always yeah. rushing out to help everyone. and uh, I was only trying to help. <laughs> yeah. well, you, you can't blame you for that. I mean, that's great. It's, uh, oh, well, time and place, Jim. Mm-hmm. I wasn't at work. I didn't have my little instructor hat on. I should mind my own business more. <laughs> Well, Clinton, I'm going to let you get back to it. Enjoy your last few days and um, we'll see when you get back. Fantastic. Have a great one, Jim. Talk to you soon. Okay, we're going to leave Clinton in the Yukon, getting ready to ride in some wet weather, maybe some wet roads. Who knows what's going to happen next? I've got a couple of things to tell you about. And when we come back, Magically, Clinton will be back at home where we can hear some more about his trip and then also glean some tips and information from him about riding in the Yukon. Stay with us. MotoCampNerd.com 
That's the website. It's a specialized camping store, specialized in motorcycle camping. It's the only one of its kind, according to Ben and Mary. That's Ben and Mary Williams. They're the founders of Moto Camp Nerd. Good name, too. I like that. Moto Camp Nerd. Obviously, a nerd about things to do with motorcycle camping. You can order anywhere, or you can walk into their brick-and-mortar location in Archdale, North Carolina. Now, I said that they specialize in motorcycle camping, and that's what I mean, because that is what they do. The whole store is dedicated to motorcycle camping, and Ben and Mary are campers themselves. So if you want to know what works or what doesn't work, or maybe what's best for your trip and your particular application, contact them. They told me they'd be happy to answer any questions, moto camping questions, to help you sort out your gear. The website, again, is motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Now, this is a small piece of engineering genius that will change the way you ride. It will fit on any bike, and it clamps on in a few minutes. It's transferable from bike to bike. And anytime you hit those long sections of road, which anyone that does much riding experiences, that's where the Atlas Throttle Lock shines. Designed by riders just like you and I, the Atlas Throttle Lock has two buttons, one for engage, one for disengage. Both give a firm, positive feedback when you press them, so there's no mistake what's going on. It feels I always say like a Swiss watch. It is beautifully crafted. And once the button is engaged and your throttle lock is on, you can easily adjust the throttle on or off to suit any speed. The quality of the Atlas throttle lock is so good. Like I mentioned, a Swiss watch. But it's so good that you're going to feel like it's a high-end option. Even better. Better than a high-end option from a quality manufacturer. You're missing out on part of the fun of riding without the Atlas throttle lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. Your connection to the motorcycle while standing is through your foot pegs. That connection gives you the control to lean to one side for the motorcycle, allowing it to turn in that direction, to transfer weight side to side, maybe tilt the bike over for balance at slow speeds, or even transfer weight front to back. They can also make a difference in comfort. They are everything to the adventurous rider. Now, a peg is not just a peg. What we need is pegs that are designed specifically for our style of riding, and IMS products has done that work and has made those pegs. IMS Products has been around since 1976, and over all those years, they've been producing parts for racers and consumers, and they have learned an unbelievable amount about producing the best possible product for a specific application. And they've taken that knowledge and put them into a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. I'm comfortable telling you that that you're going to absolutely love what they do for your control of the motorcycle. And I've heard that from many, many listeners over the years. And in fact, my IMS products foot pegs, I think make me look like a better rider than I am. They give you a confidence and control of your bike that you never had before. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Okay, so Clinton has returned from the Yukon, and here he is in his home in Ontario, Canada. Clinton, you made it back home all right. 
Yes, safe and sound. Fantastic. So how was it overall? Very good. The weather was amazing towards the end of the week. The start of the week was very wet and we would start the morning at three degrees and then it would get as high as nine or 10. But towards the end, it was in the 20s. So it was spectacular. Oh, wow. So you're talking Celsius here, three degrees, nine, yes. nine. What, what is that? That's right. Conversion. Do you know what three degrees is? Yes, quite cold. <laughs> yeah, it is. So even even ten is is not that warm. Like ten's like sixty no. something like that. Yes, right around high fifties. Yeah, yeah, something something like that in Fahrenheit. Wow. So, but when we spoke, you were just experiencing a bunch of rain. You were about to head out the next day. Did that create havoc for you? It did because some of the gravel is hard packed in the tire tracks. It's almost like pavement. I'm sure you've ridden on that and the listeners have. Mm -hmm. But when it's that hard, you add water to it, it creates maybe a quarter inch high of this scum, uh, extremely greasy mud on top of the hard pack. So you pretty well have to ride near the crown of the road in the center or on the edge. Or if you do go across the mud, don't do anything abrupt. You know, not an, uh, nice smooth gear changes are essential. Gentle throttle, no abrupt braking or turning because you'll lose traction really quickly. Is that kind of like riding with uh, like, like on calcium chloride, that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah, that's, right. the, that's the Dempster Highway that goes up from Dawson City towards the far north of of Iqaluit and Tuktoyaktuk. That's the main highway that leads you up there. Well, mm -hmm. it's the only road. <laughs> well, now, since you've been there this many times, you just came back from there. I want to get some tips from you. So for those who'd be interested in riding, we, we already you already told us why we should be going there, why we should be checking it out. And it is a motorcyclist destination. And let's face it, a lot of people already know about uh, the Yukon and want to head up there and ride. So if we're going to ride the Yukon, if, if somebody's considering doing that, what tips do you have for us? Well, riding gear, first of all, it's, it's rough country, rough roads. So I always tell people, if you can imagine that there's going to be the chance of small tip overs in sand or mud, you've got to protect your lower legs. So a street riding boot, in my opinion, doesn't belong on an adventure bike on rough roads. Uh, we did have a gentleman last year, a police officer, so excellent rider, but he did slide out in the mud, put his left foot down, and he thought it was twisted, but boy, did it ever swell up his ankle. And it turns out he called me when he got back to Ontario, it was broken. Oh. So pretty tough guy. He rode for six days with a broken ankle and all I could do was elevate and ice at night, but um, he had a hard time getting his boot on because it was so swollen. And I'm convinced if he'd had a good enduro boot that was a firmer ankle support, he wouldn't have broken it. Might have been sprained, but not broken. What kind of boots was he wearing? Um, what I would call a street boot. Very soft leather, about eight inches high, flat bottom but no real structural support. They were waterproof and everything, but mm -hmm. I wear um, a, a pair of CD crossfires and I replace the sole on them to an, an adventure sole. It's got a lot of tread. 
Because when I fall off in the mud, it's nice to be able to stand up and get some grip. <laughs> mm, yeah. Is, does the Crossfire have a screw-on sole? Yes, it does. Oh, I see. So you change that yourself. Yes, you can order them. They're not cheap because it comes with kind of a motocross sole. But it's too exciting trying to walk up a muddy hill to help <laughs> somebody. So it's $70, but I, I highly recommend getting something with a good adventure bike sole. And a good strong boot will allow you to stand up on the pegs because I was standing most of the time on the rougher roads so that I could utilize my peg steering, and isolate the bumps a little. So a soft street boot, that foot peg, especially if it's the stock skinny pegs, that's going to dig into your foot and you're just going to not enjoy the ride if you're not comfortable. Yeah, that's where a good set of IMS pegs comes in. I'll throw exactly. that plug in there. <laughs> yes, and I took three pairs of the, what are the possum socks, Jim? I'm embarrassed. Pearl, Pearly's possum socks? Yeah. Oh, I did you? Oh, great. Yeah, I, I bought three pairs and I give them away to, uh, to family as gifts. I have a motocross pair and two of the street pair. And what's amazing is your socks don't stink after a couple of days adventure riding. I, I know. I always hate to say that because it sounds disgusting that you're wearing these socks, but I mean, we've all done it. You wear the yeah. socks over and over, but these, the, because of the material, yeah, it doesn't smell. I mean, I love it. They're amazing. Yeah. And they're nice and thick, so they help protect you from chafing in the boot or for just abrasions inside the boot. I just love them. And then going up the body, I wear a really good gear. I have knee pads built into the BMW pants I have. I think it's called the Enduro Guard suit. And it's waterproof, so I don't have to carry a separate rain suit or liners. And there's pads on the hips because I'm getting older and older. When I do crash, uh, the bones are more brittle. Mm -hmm. So I want good padding to protect me. And there's zippered pockets and things like that and huge venting, which on the warm days, it has about a two foot long zipper on each leg that will, will allow air to breathe through as you're riding along, which is fantastic. Especially when you're dealing with the temperature variations that you're talking about, you know, from three degrees on up to 20. I mean, you're up to, you know, to 20 is like 72 degrees and three degrees is down near freezing. So yes. um, that's quite a, ver um, um, a spread there in temperature. And you know that the vents work because if you forget to pull them up, the cold temperature in the morning will soon remind you. <laughs> yeah, right. But they're big zippers that I can manipulate with my gloves as I'm riding. So you don't have to pull over when you're an idiot and forgot to do up your zippers. And as the jacket, I won't wear a, a coat that doesn't have a spine protector. That's really important to me. Uh, I had a buddy that taught with us at the street riding course 25 years ago. And he taught from a wheelchair and he rode a gold wing. And the only kind of different thing he'd done to adapt his bike, because he was a paraplegic, he had a golf club attached to his gear shifter. So he would pull in the clutch, roll off the gas. And with his gas hand, he grabbed the golf club and lifted up or down whatever gear he wanted and then continue. And he rode a, the bike had a sidecar that he put his wheelchair in, one of those really cool sports 
Olympic kind of wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. But the reason I brought up the story is he was in an industrial park, first gear on his bike, and a pickup truck came around the corner, ran him over and severed his spine. And he's convinced if he'd had a spine protector in his jacket, it would have minimized the injuries and maybe he could still walk. Oh, is that right? So I take that to heart. And if the adventure bike jacket I get doesn't have a spine protector, you can order them. And most of the jackets have a sleeve where you can insert um, hard, you know, the good stuff to protect you in the event of a crash. Mm-hmm. And you can even get strap-on ones, can't you, that you, you put yeah, on exactly. independently. Yeah. Underneath the jacket. Yeah, great idea. Uh, one of the most experienced BMW instructors who started the the GS program is a guy named Tom Wolf, and he hit a sheep in Patagonia. He may have been going a little over the speed limit, but if you hit a dog at very high speeds, it's very sad, but sometimes they run out in front. Your front tire will pretty well create two halves, but a sheep, the wool, binds the animal together. So he said it was like hitting a brick wall. And as a result of this accident, he broke ribs that punctured his lung. And so now he wears, just as you're describing, that kind of strap-on chest protector, spine protector underneath his BMW jacket. Mm. Right. Just for that extra protection, just in case. Now, are you riding with an air vest or or a neck brace? No, I do have a neck brace. I forgot it on this trip and I kept thinking, oh, you moron. Couldn't buy one in Whitehorse. There's two bike shops there and I couldn't, they didn't have any. But I normally do like the neck brace and the rationalization of riding one is sometimes, you know, riding off-road, we put a knee pad around a knee and a tib-fib. And those are big, solid bones in our body. We protect the femur as well. We have chest protectors, but we do nothing for our neck, which is about the thickness of your baby finger. So the neck brace will prevent the helmet going backwards and severing any of the vertebra in the, from the bottom of the head down. And that's what usually puts people into wheelchairs. Mm. Okay, and so what else? Um, Now, now some people wear an adventure helmet will have a peak. Definitely full face is the way to go. And so it has a visor, but in really warm conditions, if it's dusty, as you're riding, that means your left hand is off of the handlebar, raising or lowering your visor. So a lot of us will wear a good goggle underneath the visor and that way you can just ride without relinquishing partial control of the handlebars because if it's dusty you got to protect your eyes Mm -hmm. Uh, plus there's a lot of bugs up in the north i think it's the territorial bird of the yukon the mosquito (laughs) hey so you're saying about lifting or, or, or putting the visor down so lifting up putting it down and you're wearing goggles to avoid that. So I, I missed what you're saving there. Yeah. Well, the idea is you could leave it up the whole time. 
and the goggles protecting your vision. Right. And then you could put it down if it's inclement, you know, weather, it's raining hard. They're like little BBs hitting you if it's cold or extreme dust. I would put it down so I can breathe better. But there should be some eye protection in addition to the visor because you're often moving the visor up and down. Right. And the moment you open it, that's when the crap flies in. And that's how yeah. I ride like that all the time. I always have a, a set of glasses on. I don't yeah. wear, I don't wear glasses. So I always right. use the riding glasses underneath the visor. And I like having the visor up anyway, just for the fresh air. I'm, I really yes. like that air coming in. Yes. Uh, what I do, I do need glasses or I'd be in the ditch even more often. <laughs> but um, my optometrist said, Hey, Clinton, we've got these ones. It's from a company called Swatch. And they put my prescription in them, but there's rubber inlay that goes around my eye socket. So it's, it's a very tight fit, just like goggles. And they're photo ray. Swatch, that's the name, Jim. I could send you a picture of them in case listeners are interested. Yeah, it's I think a good it's, idea. It's an American company, but the idea is they're just like a goggle, but they're, they look like fancy sunglasses. And you wear those all the time. Yes, when I'm riding, because they're photo gray as well, so they'll adjust to the sun. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have to clean them regularly in the dusty conditions because I'm at the back. But still, they're just fantastic because they're airtight around my eye socket. And so I love them. The other part of, of the adventure helmet, I prefer one that has a peak because I can use it like a sun visor. And when I do crash... It's not if I crash. When I do, the visor hits the ground first. So it keeps my face out of the dirt a little. Hmm. And if you're going through trails that have branches and leaves, you don't have to take your hand off the bar. What I do is just duck a little bit. And then as soon as the leaves or branches hit the peak of my helmet, I can lift my head back up. Yeah. So that's what I look for. Uh, the only other thing I wear, I take three pairs of gloves with me based on if it's raining or not and how cold it is. But they're all real good quality for abrasion protection. And the parts of my gear that are leather, I use mink oil to waterproof them as best I can before the trip. And same with my boots. If there's any leather on them, I'll waterproof them the best I can. The only other thing I wear is a yellow safety vest. And the helmet I took on this trip was a BMW GS helmet that just came out. And it was this awful fluorescent orange. <laughs> and you can see it for a mile. It's awesome. Well, that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it really is for me. Yeah. I want to be seen in traffic. There's not a lot of traffic just when you get into cities, which are small. But uh, I don't care if people have to pull over and throw up after they see me. I just want them to see me. <laughs> exactly. And I always recommend people, you're, you should never be in that much of a hurry that you ride too close to someone when it's dusty. I hate inhaling it. I don't want my bike clogged with it. So I'll back way off. And that gives time for a little bit of wind if there is any or at least for the dust to dissipate by settling. 
Uh, riding in dust when you can't see is just insane. You might as well close your eyes and hope for the best. When you're doing that, how are you communicating? Do you guys have comms? Because I know you don't like comms. No, we, we didn't. Some of the riders that came as friends had comms between them. But uh, I don't really want to talk to anybody when I'm riding along. There's enough voices in my head. <laughs> There's no, no room for anybody else. That's right. <laughs> Shut up. I'm talking. Yeah. So, there, you know, we tell people this is the directions. There could be as many as 20 people in this kind of tour, which people are thinking, you know, I have a hard time touring with one other bike. But the, the idea is, you set off in the morning with the instructions of where we're going to meet and how fast you go, the route that you go will give you suggestions, but that's up to you. So it's usually two or three bikes in a group, maybe four. We don't recommend you ride alone, uh, even if you have bear spray, because if you go off the road in some of these rural areas, we just will pass you and not even know you're down in the ditch. Mm-hmm. So we give tips like that. And if you go off the road, instead of spending half an hour trying to get your bike back, the very first thing you should do is put your helmet on the side of the road so people coming along will know you're there and you need help. Mm. And I've always thought that was a universal signal from a motorcyclist to another motorcyclist, I need help. Put your helmet on the side of the road. Take it off first. (laughs) Yeah, you got to take it off first. <laughs> Don't be lying on the side of the road. And that way, if you spot a helmet, then you know what they're doing. You, you know something's yeah. going on there. Time to pull over yeah. and, and help a friend. Yeah, if you're just pulling over for a smoke or a pitcher or a pee, leave your helmet on, sure. But that's that's a good way to get somebody to stop. This isn't a, like obviously a full thing on, on getting ready for the Yukon, but no. so, so that gives you an idea of, and thank you for that. That was great to, to get the idea on your personal riding gear, your riding protection. Now, what I really want to get from you is some tips for riding. So maybe you could start off with just talking about the conditions that you may encounter when riding in the yeah. Yukon, and then maybe some tips for skills that will help us ride better if we go. Absolutely. You can appreciate some of the classic places that people want to go in the Yukon in Alaska are there's three main roads, the Klondike Highway, the Dempster Highway, the Top of the World Highway. They're all gravel and probably will be for many, many years because very few people or industry are located on these scenic, spectacularly scenic gravel roads. So hopefully folks can get up there before they pave it. The Labrador Highway is almost all paved now. And that was a real mecca for adventure bikes. You know, now it's like driving to Toronto almost. Mm -hmm. So with gravel, you've got to be prepared that in really remote areas, they don't have the municipal infrastructure and money to grave it once a week. You're lucky if you'll see a greater you know, once a year or a season in some of these remote areas. So that means when there's also multi-vehicle use, let's take the Dempster Highway. It's a main artery to take supplies by big truck to the far north, um, up to Tuktoyaktuk, for instance. So imagine a semi-truck pulling a pup behind it 
you know, there's up to 30 wheels and it's full of fuel or, or dry goods. If the road is soft after rain or in the spring, that truck is going to leave huge ruts. And when the moisture dries out of the ground, those ruts are still there. And they're going to be there until a grader comes. So you, you might be in a section of gravel that's hard packed. And in the tire track, it's almost like pavement, Jim. But then you go over a rise. What I tell people is if you're going down a hill on a gravel road, you can assume there's going to be ruts on that hill. Because when water runs downhill and then heavy, heavy vehicles go up or down the hill, the ground is soft. So there's bound to be ruts. There's also bound to be washed out loose soil that gets down to the bottom of the hill. Sand, for instance, is the lightest aggregate and a heavy rain will wash the sand from the hill surface and it kind of pulls it at the bottom of the hill. So a lot of people will have trouble at the bottom of a hill if they're going too fast when they hit the sand. The front wheel wobbles and they'll panic and do something wrong like shut the gas off or put the front brake on. Mm. So those are things that you can almost, it's almost a given that on gravel, gravel, heavy gravel roads, when you add moisture and then heavy vehicles, you're going to experience sand and ruts. Okay. Well, those are great tips. And I like the way you describe that too. It makes perfect sense. So if you're looking at skills, I mean, obviously we can go on and on about skills, but if, you, but if you're looking at skills and you're thinking you're going to recommend to somebody, this is what you should be practicing before you go, what would be the important ones? What would be the top ones? Well, for ruts, you either want to stay out of them, or if you happen, your bike has a mind of its own and you end in the ruts, you should have what we call peg steering ability. When you're standing up, we've discussed this before, if you lean heavily on your left foot, your motorcycle's going to go to the left. If you lean on the right foot more than the other, it's going to lean to the right. And that's how we steer our motorcycles at any speed that you can keep your feet up, not with the handlebars. So your eyes must be looking up down the rut towards the end of it. If you look down at the one side of the rut directly in front of your bike, you're going to go where you look. And the danger in a rut is if you try purposefully or inadvertently to exit the rut before you get to the end of it, you can end up with one wheel out and one wheel in the rut and that can cause an accident. That is a very dangerous scenario, especially at speed, because cross-running is what we call it. The front wheel can actually jackknife, let's say to the left, and you'll go over the handlebars like a slingshot. Mm. And that, that's a high side, and that can be very dangerous. So Clinton, the idea of looking down the road much further, it does a couple of things in my mind. It gives you more time to respond to what you see coming up and also gives you more road to sort of aim or more rut to aim at as you're going along rather than doing this fast little reaction when you're looking right in front of you. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, you said that better than I did. Um, if you're looking six feet or a bike length in front of your front tire, 
it's extremely hard to go in a straight line, even on hard pavement. Mm -hmm. So if your head is up looking, what I ask students to do, and I'm about 10 yards, you know, nine meters away from them. I said, I know it's scary. I apologize. But I want you to stare at my face as I'm talking with with the center of your eyeball. I had an open face helmet, Jim, and crashed a lot as a kid. That's my excuse. (laughs) So stare at my face. So as they're doing that, I'll say, focus right on my face with the center of your eyeball. Can you see me swinging my boot back and forth? And they'll say yes. And I'll have to remind at least one guy, no, don't look down at my boot. (laughs) Use your lower peripheral vision. That's the vision we need when riding any kind of motorcycle or bicycle. Mm -hmm. Look down the trail, but you can see the rut, the rock or the stump or the pylon if you're taking training with this peripheral vision. A difficult thing to do, but training yourself to do it is just paramount. It's the same as making a corner, isn't it? When you look as far into the corner, imagining that you can see through the corner, you just see things quicker that come around the corner than if you're looking Uh, down. Yeah, you can't set up your trajectory for a straight line or a curve if your head's down. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up in the ditch or cross the center line. It's just a mess. Yeah, that makes sense. It's one of the most common things I hear our staff (laughs) reminding people, eyes up, eyes up. It's extremely important if you do want to do any kind of adventure riding, the road will not be forgiving if your eyes are down. You could kind of get away with it on pavement for a little while. Eventually, some car is going to cut you off. But in gravel, every 10 feet is a pothole, a rut, a rock, some sand or a mud puddle. You have to keep your eyes up. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And you were talking about riding ruts there. What you didn't mention there, and I know that you probably meant that, is your standing. Yes, absolutely. The only time I recommend to people sit down is if you're a little scared and you get in the rut, slow right down. There's no shame in sitting down and just crawling along at two miles an hour using the clutch and duck walk your feet. There's nobody there marking you. Just make sure your four ways are on in case somebody comes up behind you. The goal is to get to the other side of the deep ruts. If you're a great rider, you could do it standing up, peg steer, clutch. But the goal is to get to the other side. Right. And by standing on the, on the pegs, we have a better vision because we're up higher. But also it stops uh, that whiplash effect when the bike is, is moved from side to side. Rather than you flopping around as the rider and causing more problems, you're actually standing up and controlling. And I know we've talked about this before. Yes, exactly. And the other part that I think you should pre- be prepared of for the Yukon is bugs. Especially in the time we went last week is June. And after the spring, that's when the mosquito breeds and they're hungry. So I bought one of those little hats with a netting. I think they're for fishing. Yeah. But locals said this June was remarkably light on mosquitoes. So I never got the mosquito netting out. The only time I saw another uh, person in our group wearing it is we, someone advised us to take another road that we've never been on. 
but it would uh, be 50 kilometers of really fun gravel right through the bush and hardly anyone uses it. Well, we got halfway into it and the bridge was out. So we had to traverse this little river. I'm at the back. The gentleman that leads it, Clint McBride, had already ridden his bike across and a couple of other braver souls. So there's people standing around and that's when the mosquitoes swarmed us. But that's the only time I really had a a thought of, man, I should get that out of my bike and put Mm. it on. And now did it work out fine, that little detour you did? Yeah, it was so much fun. We took videos of it. Um, I was showing people that if you don't feel like you want to risk riding through it, because there's a lot of rocks as well, you can walk your bike. Just be on the left side, first gear, and walk beside your bike, controlling the speed that you want with the clutch. And then you just have to give it a little shot just before you go up the bank for that momentum. And with a rocky bottom in this little river, uh, it was great traction. So some people rode their bikes, but most people let me walk their bike across. Now, you mentioned gravel there as well, Clinton. Are we going to talk about gravel separate? Yes. Uh, The gravel with time, like if it's freshly graded, it's quite loose and it is uh, very thick. So you've got to slow it down in that. And at speed, your bike will kind of oscillate a few inches to the right and left. Um, The worst thing you can do when you hit that and you feel your front tire wobble a little is to shut the throttle off and get on the front brake. What I recommend is drop a gear or two so you have crisp throttle response available. Now, hang on, you're talking about drop a gear or two before you start the gravel. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Yeah. Often it's, you realize once you're in it, oh man, I'm doing 85 kilometers an hour, 50 miles an hour, and all of a sudden my front wheel's wobbling because this is a loose gravel section. So the mistake you made was not letting your friend go first and you watch them wobble. That tells you to slow down. Mm-hmm. But if you find yourself there, don't just shut the throttle off because that loads more weight onto the contact patch of the front tire. You're making it worse. It's going to really burrow. And letting the throttle off as you're going like that, that's, that's the same as stepping on the rear brake. It is because it dives. And mm-hmm. it's an instinctive, you would think almost wise reaction. I'm scared. They're screaming in my helmet. I should, I should not go faster. Yeah. What I'm saying is just drop down a gear or two and then give it a little shot of gas to keep the front end and the front shocks elongated a little. That way the weight transfer goes back onto the rear drive wheel and it allows the front tire to skim over this loose fresh gravel, fresh graded gravel. Then the only other thing you have to do as the rider is relax your grip on the bars. And that's such an instinctive thing to do when we're nervous is to eagle claw the handle grips. And you're never going to be strong enough to make that bike go straight. It's just oscillating and wobbling a little. That's completely normal, but it takes a while to get used to. But that's the trick for gravel. And appreciate that you're going to need more braking distance if you have 
the ability to shut your ABS brakes off on your bike, we recommend shutting them off. And allow more following distance. That will reduce dust and give you more reaction time, i.e. braking, if you need to. Okay, so um, standing, ruts, gravel. Is there, is there anything else on the top of the list? I, I, like I know we could go through a lot of stuff here, but um, for top things. Yeah, what I think the vehicle that you're riding, if you're doing all-day gravel rough roads, I was recommending to people, just don't be glad you make it to the campsite or motel and shut the bike off and then do your your routine for meals or anything else. Take five minutes. As soon as you get in, throw the bike on the center stand if you have one and do a really good gloves-off, hands-on inspection of your bike. I'm looking for stuff that's rattled and is loosed and is missing. Are my rims cracked? Are my tires torn up a little? And it's really smart to do that after the ride on the same evening Rather than get out in the morning, you're, you're ready to go, as is the other participants in your group, and you've got a flat tire. Oh, I and like you, that, yeah. You didn't notice it was half flat the night before because you just got off the bike and walked into the hotel right. or the campsite. So it's really important, I think, check over tires, anything that may have loosened off, fallen off, and I speak from experience because we're all ready to go in the mornings. And I'm the sweep rider, so I wait till I see the last guy put his gloves on and tie his helmet up. And then we're ready to go. And then the guy pulls over. Oh, man, I got a flat tire. Well, it didn't happen in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. So now I gotta, I've got to get all my gear off, get the tools out, fix that guy's flat tire, and now the whole group is either got to wait or we've got to catch up. Right. Or you've at least got to know the proposed route because you're not part of the group anymore. We're in our own little group. Yeah. So that's, you know, things happen, but we definitely think you should really inspect your bike if you're doing hard adventure roads. You should do it every morning pavement, but nobody does. Yeah. So to inspire people... I can be a bit of a goof at times, but to inspire people, I always get up early anyway and I go out and I use the dew that's accumulated on my bike to wipe off the dust or a little bit of mud off it. And I carry Windex and a rag specifically for cleaning my license plate, tail light, headlight, get the windshield. Uh, I clean where I'm going to put the tank bag back on top of my bike so it's not going to scratch it on built up mud. So I went back in while guys were finishing breakfast and I said, Hey, good morning, everybody. I just thought you'd like to know, I checked over all your bikes. One of you has a really low front tire and I just left it hang there. And they're going, <laughs> well, well, which bike is it? I said, I'm not going to tell you because I've noticed none of you chuckleheads check your bikes over before you just <laughs> jump on and take off. So I wasn't very popular, but it made them get a tire gauge out or actually borrow my tire gauge because they, who goes on a big adventure trip without a tire gauge? I was flabbergasted. Um, uh, we do a one day adventure bike maintenance course 
And that's the idea that if you're going off by yourself or with a pal, you don't have a support vehicle following you like we do. This is kind of a handheld way of getting into adventure riding. You don't need to know. But if you're going to Africa or <laughs> someplace that you don't have support, you can't use your visa to fix your bike and you can't call anyone even if you had cell coverage. You better know how to do the basics of chain repair, um, plug a tire, replace a tube, mm -hmm. fix basic electrical issues like a burnt fuse, uh, use JB Weld. That's all the stuff we teach on this one day course. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, and, and to get that course, they just go to your regular website. We always put a link into your, your website. In the Actually, show <laughs> it's not on the website because it's, it was more of a, when there was calls for demand for it, it was oh, usually, usually before people were going on these trips, that's when I would throw one together. Mm. But it does have a specific curriculum. I have a couple of engine cases we drill holes into and they have to fix it with JB Weld. Right. And I have, I find some bikes that need tires and then they can spoon a tire on and off, things like that. So what do they do? If they're interested, they just email you about it? Yes. If anybody's interested, they can just email us through the website. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we talked about, um, standing ruts and gravel. That That's really the essence then of the Yukon. If, if you're going to go to the Yukon, you should, you should be comfortable standing. You should be comfortable dealing with ruts, with gravel and obviously with mud. Yeah. And for one of the other things we highly recommend is you're good with emergency braking on gravel. Because if your ABS is either on or off, it's going to feel dramatically different than a hard brake on pavement. If your ABS is on, you're going to feel a pulsation in your toe and your perceived braking judgment, which is, okay, I'm going to put my brakes on now because, you know, I usually stop about there at a stop sign. On gravel, increase that speed that distance that you think you'll stop at because you're going to need a lot more braking distance mm. Be because of the loose surface your tire if the abs is on um, when it senses it's skidding it lets go of the brake so on a loose surface that letting go of the brake and reapplying it the computer does that far more often than it will on wet pavement Mm -hmm. Subsequently, your braking distance is a lot further. In contrast, if you shut the ABS off, which I do and I recommend people do, if you're on a road all day long on gravel, ABS should not be on. Mm -hmm. But what you can expect to experience is the rear brake will cause the back wheel to skid very easily. So that doesn't necessarily mean you'll stop in less or more distance. It depends on the surface. But front brake application, you have to do smoothly and calmly and progressively. Because if you reach out with cat-like reflexes and hammer on the front brake, ABS on dry pavement, that action is quite forgiving. But if you grab the front brake on an adventure bike, any bike, and your off-road and gravel ABS is off, you're probably going to fall down. Mm -hmm. So to find this skill out and to perfect it is not when you're already in the Yukon, 
and the moose runs across the road or your buddy stops suddenly because he wants to take a picture and he didn't use his turn signal. So I highly recommend people practice on some gravel, you know, do it from 10 miles an hour and get used to your bike sliding around a bit under hard braking. What's your, your last line of advice for anybody considering the Yukon? Um, don't go alone. We did have a gentleman that was his lifelong dream. He rode street and he traded it in. When he retired, he bought a, the Africa Twin Adventure model. And he was barely tippy-toed on it. He came up to us for a one-day course. So we do a dual sport course to initiate people into adventure bikes. So you would ride one of our little 250 dirt bikes for the morning. We have a nice lunch. And then we use your bike and practice your newfound skills in gravel, gravel hills, up and down, braking, just so you're comfortable to go out in the adventure world. And this gentleman really struggled because once we got onto the big, heavy, much heavier bike than what he had for the street or that morning on the dirt bike, he fell a lot. So we we're trying to give him tips that work for people who don't have really long legs and you can't touch the ground flat footed. But by the end of the day, I said, I know you've booked this solo trip up to the Yukon, but I really advise you and just doing a weekend trip to Quebec. There's fantastic gravel roads in our province of Ontario. You know, an hour and a half from Toronto, I could plan you a full two days on nothing but gravel. Mm -hmm. So it's very close to where a lot of people live. Um, I said, do a short trip. You've never set up your tent even, and you're going to camp across Canada. He didn't take our advice, and our office manager, Bev, told me that she received an email from him. He got as far as northern BC, he didn't make it to the Yukon, and he had a pretty bad crash and needed to find somebody with a trailer because he was in one of these remote little villages with no mechanic, no nothing, no U-Haul, nothing. So it was very sad. Oh, yeah. Um, so my advice would be don't jump into shark-infested waters and to learn how to swim. You, you don't go on an adventure ride that's got demanding tough roads with little experience and no support. It's just too risky. Well, Clinton, that's great information. Thank you very much. I'm glad you had such a wonderful time on that. And uh, I guess you're looking forward to next year already. Yes. Well, we go to Colorado in another month. Same idea. We're shipping our bikes to Denver from Toronto. We fly in, unload our bikes and travel for a week. Oh, wow. Okay. So that sounds like fun too. Well, you've got a good year here. Oh, I'm so spoiled. <laughs> um, and after Colorado, we have this one, one of those BDR routes. That's in the fall, I think, September. And, and that we're riding to that because it's just New York. It's like five hours from my house. Oh, yeah. But our office manager said when I put yet another week when I'll be away, <laughs> she said, why don't you just put the days that you're available to teach? <laughs> Uh-oh, you're going to get yourself yeah. in trouble at your own business. 
I used to think I own the place, but <laughs> yeah, the office manager it tells me what to do. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great, Clinton. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All the best, Jim. Take care. We've got a bunch of photos of Clinton's Yukon adventure in the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, and I want to throw in there, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. That's where you come in. If you're not doing it already, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. There's a bunch of different ways you can support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your pannier, your toolbox. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. That's the other show that we do that comes out once a month. Another interesting thing, if you haven't heard that already, all available, all that information is at our website as well. We'd love to get you to consider that patron option. So you're just giving a small amount. It's, it's like buying a cup of coffee for somebody each month. You know, we put out four or five episodes a month. We put a ton of work into them. So think about what value you get from those if, if you do. And yeah, step up to the plate and, and sign up for Patreon. We'd really enjoy it if, if you would. And, and thank you very much for considering that. Otherwise, you can share the show with your friends, share it on social media, let other people know it, or you could drop by um, iTunes and give us a, a rating. Of course, I'm asking for a five-star rating, but, but a rating at iTunes, that helps other people find the show. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening once again. I appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week. Hey, I'm Jocelyn Snow, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 